This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Reem Cassis, who is a former student of mine, is a Palestinian food writer. Her debut cookbook, The Palestinian Table, was nominated for a James Beard Award, and it was shortlisted for the Andre Simon Award and the Edward Stanford Award, and it won the Guild of Food Writers First Book Award. This book received rave reviews from Anthony Bourdain and Michael Solomonov. It was named one of NPR's best books of 2017 and has been featured all over the place. The New York Times, the Financial Times, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, and The Guardian, many others. Born and raised in Jerusalem, Reem holds two undergraduate degrees from the University of Pennsylvania, an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and an MSc in social psychology from the London School of Economics. A former McKinsey consultant, today Reem is using the power of food and storytelling to share the Palestinian narrative with the world. She's currently working on her second book about the evolving cross-cultural food of the Middle East. In this episode, Reem and I discuss the courage it takes to stop, quote, ticking the boxes, quote, in order to follow your own interests, your own values, your own metrics for success as a human being, rather than continuing to follow others' versions of what success should mean. Reem speaks quite candidly here about how scary it was for her to step off the standard track, to confront her own outdated beliefs, to find and listen to those who are, quote, in the ring with you, quote, your real, true supporters, and to realize the power of taking small steps toward a big idea. For information about her recipes, her moving descriptions of her homeland, and the ways in which food can bridge divides, visit reemkassis.com. That's R-E-E-M-K-A-S-S-I-S. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would rate it, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast, so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it too. So now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from the remarkable journey of the amazing Reem Cassis. Reem Cassis, welcome to Thank Work and Life. Too. Thank you. It's so great to have you here. So wonderful to be back. Well, Reem, uh, back on campus on this beautiful day, Reem was in my classroom uh, a few months back. Every every year, I invite some of our um, esteemed alumni to come and speak to my students in this class, which is about leadership from the point of view of the whole person. 
about their experiences in the course and what they took away from it and how it informs what they're doing today. Your story, Reem, really resonated with so many of my students um, just a few months ago. And and I thought it would be uh, one that our listeners would be interested in as well. So in, in, in brief, why don't, why don't you give us the story of uh, how you got to where you are right now? So I left Jerusalem when I was 17, and I came here. I started my undergrad. Um, and I remember when I first got into university, my father would proudly tell people where I was going to school. And reactions were mixed. Some people were delighted. Others would say, why? She's your only daughter. She's young. There's good universities here. But one response really stuck. And it was a guy who said to him, "Ah, why are you going to send her and waste all that money on an education when you know she's going to end up in the kitchen like all Arab women anyway? Mm. So I was furious, but fury sometimes is a good motivator. And I came here. I did my undergrad. I finished it in three years. Wow. I went straight on to do my MBA. I was the youngest person in the class by a margin. And then I got hmm. a job offer at McKinsey. And I remember... The golden ring for so exactly, many of our students. Exactly, right? I mean, so I remember my first few weeks in the office, I'd walk in and I'd see McKinsey and company written on the wall. And I'd think, oh my God, I've made it. This is it. Mm-hmm. But then another voice in my head would say, and yeah, and that's it. And I think, you know, a few months in, I realized I wasn't happy where I was. And not because the job itself wasn't good. To the contrary, it was a great job. It just wasn't right for me. And it was a rude awakening to realize I had been living someone else's version of success, not mine. And mm. in part, I was doing it because I wanted to prove a point or to tick a box. And, you know, many of us who end up at universities like UPenn, we've lived our whole life ticking boxes, doing Mm -hmm. the right thing, the acceptable thing, not really thinking so much about what we want or where our passions lie, but rather about what's the right thing or the next thing to do. According to what your society or your your society says, what your peers might say, what Mm -hmm. you read about, et cetera. And I think at that point, you know, the story sounds very linear when I talk about it, but obviously it Well, was. that's true of everyone. <laughs> In retrospect, the story seems to go from point A to B to C to so D. So easily. Nobody but talks about all the It's never like that. It's always between. a mess. Exactly. But please continue. No, so I mean, I left McKinsey and again, I went back to school because it's what I knew. I thought it was what I wanted to do and I'll get a PhD, become a, a professor of some sort. So and you left McKinsey to go to the London School of Economics exactly. to study social psychology? Yes. I had been doing research here with Americus, actually. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll continue. That's Americus Reed in the marketing exactly, department, yes. my esteemed colleague. <laughs> um, and I loved the topic that I was studying. It was interesting. but um, What was it? Uh, it was about identity and uh, happiness and why we make certain decisions about our careers and then realize that they don't fit in with the expectations we have. So uh-huh. very relevant to what I was going through you were at the time. asking these questions of yourself I and was. of the world. I was. And then, you know, I didn't expect to get the answer that I did. But um, What do you mean? Well, so my daughter was born um, after I finished my master's, but before I embarked on a PhD plan. And hmm. I worried about the usual decisions that anyone who's starting a family might worry about, things like, do I go back and get that PhD? Do I continue with the ticking the boxes? Or do I pivot and do something that I'm passionate about? And that's where the whole... So so the, the PhD pursuit was another box to be ticked? To an extent. I mean, I knew that I loved writing and I loved talking to people and I wanted to do something that could make a difference, that could maybe inspire people. And I thought, maybe this is it. Maybe understanding why people make these decisions and studying that in an academic setting, becoming a professor might be the way to do that. Mm -hmm. But I ended up realizing there was another way that I was maybe destined, for lack of a better word, to do. 
but that I was too afraid to even admit to myself because somehow I looked at the kitchen as this bad life sentence for a woman Hmm. to be in. And it was after my first daughter was born that I started to think, well, maybe it's not. You know, here I am compiling these recipes for her because I don't want her to lose her heritage. But looking at all these recipes, I thought, okay, you know, yes, they are the stories and recipes of my family, but... So your daughter was born and you began this project just to, to Again, clarify. it sounds very linear. I, I, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> you can fill in the crevices with the, with the, the glue that uh, is, uh, you know, the of interest. Go, go ahead. Look, I panicked. I thought I'm raising my daughter very differently to the way I was brought up you, without the sense of community and connection that had been so central to my childhood. And if mm-hmm. I wanted her to have those values and that roots, I had to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when I started compiling the recipes. Again, I had no intention of turning it into a cookbook. But hmm. you were motivated to give her yes a legacy in a way. Hmm. And then once I saw the things coming together, I thought, well, this is a narrative very different to the one that we're used to hearing when we think of the word Palestinian. Hmm. And that's when the idea of the book came to me. Obviously. So what was the difference be- between what we usually hear and the narrative that you were crafting and cultivating your own... Culinary history. Well, look, you hear the word Palestinian, and the first thing that comes to your mind is war and politics and conflict. And here I was looking at something that showed Palestinians as people with a history, with a culinary tradition that could be very interesting. You know, there's this huge appeal to the in the world of food right now where people want to understand ethnic cuisines and Mm -hmm. very niche ethnic cuisines. You know, Middle Eastern is no longer enough. I want to understand all the different parts of the Middle East. Um, and that's where the idea for the book first came from. I'm, I'm looking at uh, the current Philadelphia magazine. Mm-hmm. I have it in my hands right now. And there's a story uh, that is titled, The Sudden Spectacular Rise of Middle Eastern Cuisine. And you're, you're <laughs> part of that story. So so this is this is a burgeoning movement. And your contribution emerged how? So... I thought of doing this book because, in a way, it tells a story. It's not just recipes. There's a lot of anecdotes throughout, a lot of historical information that is actually very apolitical. People ask me, you know, your book doesn't discuss the politics of the region or of the country at all. And I said, that was intentional. I want you to learn my story and then make up your decisions about the politics. I don't Mm. want to feed the politics to you. And it's actually been quite interesting because... It's led to a lot of friendships and conversations, and it's changed a lot of opinions about the issues that we deal with as Palestinians, simply because I wasn't trying to force any stories onto anyone. I was just saying, get to know us, come share a meal, and maybe then you can understand the story a little Hmm. bit better. So that over a meal, different kinds of conversations happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Uncomfortable ones, but that's basically the purpose of food. You know, I'm very wary of this idea that food diplomacy can solve the problems of the Middle East. There's Mm -hmm. no bowl of hummus in the whole world that can do that, no matter how good it is. You and I are not going to solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict We thought we might in an hour, but it might be a stretch. We have a little less than an hour. 45 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) How about love? Maybe that'll solve it. That works, too. (laughs) I mean, that's essentially what has to happen. But you came at it through the story that you knew you could tell, and you, mm-hmm. but you, you were deliberate about wanting to keep the political piece out of it. Yes. How did you come to know that that was important for you to exclude? 
Because I think for a long time, people were not even addressing the issue of food and culture as Palestinians, because we thought that anything that didn't address the conflict kind of detracted from its importance. And I started to realize, well, food is another way to tell this story without shoving things down people's throats forcefully. You are telling them, look, I'm a mother, I am a daughter, I am a sister, I am a human just like you. And these is these are my recipes. This is my story. Let it speak for itself. Let these dishes tell you about the history of a people who have been here for centuries, who have lived in this land, who have shared it with the Jews before. And mm-hmm. you come make up your own mind when you understand these stories about my past and my history. And so far, it's been a very interesting ride. Well, Uh, Go ahead. You were about to say more about that. Well, no, I was going to reference actually your class because I think when a lot of this was going on, I kept going back to something that you said to us. Actually, it was a question in one of your assignments, which Mm -hmm. said, who do you admire most? Hmm. And I think it's one of the questions that was very simple. Most people don't even remember it, but it's stuck with me. And to this day, I still often ask myself, who do you admire most? And that sometimes changes. Um, but having that answer is often like a roadmap to me of, you know, who do I aspire to be like? Who do I, whose opinion do I care about? And having that in the back of my head has always made it easier to make these decisions about whether I pivot or what do I focus on or what importance I give to things in my life. So, Reem, mm-hmm. yes, my job with, with my teaching, generally speaking, is to be asking what my daughter refers to as annoying questions, <laughs> <laughs> which are intended to provoke, to, to push people's thinking. Uh-huh. Um, and that was a pretty straightforward one. Who do you admire and why? Mm-hmm. Can you tell us who that person was and why that person was so important in your thinking about the kind of person you wanted to become? And like I mentioned a bit before, that person also sometimes changes throughout my life. Of course. Um, and I, the answer I gave in your class is very different perhaps from the answer that I gave a few years later or okay. that I would give now. So that was what, five, six years ago? Oh God, like I wish I was that young. No, that was 10 years ago. You were in my class 10 years ago? 10 years ago. Oh my God, I wish I was that young. <laughs> okay. So, really? Yes. Oh my goodness. All right. So who was it and why? I, so back then that? the answer I put was, I was surprised when that was the first person that popped in my head, but it was the lady who used to help my mother at home. And the reason I put that was she was a woman who she lived in the West Bank. She would wake up at four in the morning to cross checkpoints to make it to our house. Um, her, They were living in poverty. She lived in one room with all her kids and her husband. And through sheer grit and hard work, she managed to lift them up out of poverty. And I thought, this is a woman who really values her family. She is doing these sacrifices because she feels that there is this cause that she cares about more than anything. Which was? her family. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was doing everything that she did because she believed in providing for them. She believed in the value of education. She was working mm-hmm. to send her kids to school. Mm-hmm. And I often thought I admire... so many immigrants do. Exactly. You know, my husband's family is immigrants. He's first generation in this country. And you see that sense of that work ethic, that desire to succeed and the grit that comes as a result of it. They're lost on a lot of generations afterwards and it's a shame and Mm -hmm. I thought this is something that I want to have I want to I don't want to do a job just because it's lucrative or because everybody else wants it I want to find meaning in what I do I want it to serve a bigger purpose Mm -hmm. and which is a fundamental question in the total leadership approach what is is it that you really care about what's Mm -hmm. your purpose 
And how does that inform the important choices you're making about the career, the family, your role in society that you want to play? The funny thing is sometimes these things come to you only after you've gone down a path. You know, if you'd asked yes. me before I did this book, what's your pur- is your purpose really to help bridge the narratives about the Middle East or to help bring mm-hmm. peace in, it, in any way, shape, or form, I would have said, no, this is unrealistic. But the more I embark, embark on this path, the more I realize this is something I care about. And it is a kind of legacy I want to leave for my kids that even though it was an aspiration that I knew maybe in my lifetime I could not achieve, I was still working towards it. The aspiration of? Of helping to to say bring peace to our country sounds almost too far-fetched, but at least improve situations for Palestinians. Hmm. And so how did you find the courage? I mean, it must have taken a lot for you to, to make that shift because mm-hmm. that was fundamental. Yes. What did it take? Look, it was scary. I'm not going to lie. And I think a lot of times courage, you build the courage having gone through that experience. So if I sit here and tell you I was so courageous and that's why I pivoted, it's not true. I was scared out of my mind doing this. What were you scared of? I mean, I had just spent five years in school and another year afterwards at LSE and I had finally gotten this job offer that I'd worked so hard for and I was going to turn my back on it. And I knew once I did, it would probably be very hard to go back. Hmm. And that's not an easy thing to do. No, it's very, very hard. So how long had you been at McKinsey? When this... A year. So I didn't stay there very long. I knew very early on. And again, it was that question again. I was in a meeting with one of the partners, and I asked her a question at the end. And it was basic. I just said, hey, how you know? do you get to spend time with your kids every day? And she goes, oh, I don't even see my kids every day. Hmm. And I thought, she's. I respected her very much professionally. But on a personal level, that was not the kind of mother I wanted to be because, again, our priorities are different. Mm -hmm. To me, I wanted to spend time with family. And I thought, if this is not someone I aspire to be when I, quote unquote, grow up, then maybe this isn't the right place for me to be anyway. So so then how did you convert that questioning Mm -hmm. of your career intentions Mm -hmm. into decisions? I mean, I think a lot of these things are very small steps. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you look at something that we want to do and we say, oh, my God, how am I ever going to publish a cookbook? I'm nobody in this world. I said I'm not going to look at the 10 steps down the line. I'm going to focus on the one single step that I have control over right now, and that was writing the proposal, which I did. I wrote a 100-page proposal for what ended up becoming a 250-page book. Mm -hmm. And then it was, okay, get an agent. Well, how are you going to get an agent? I had spent hours in the bookstore flipping through cookbooks that I liked, looking at the acknowledgement sections to see the names of the agents that were thanked Smart. by the authors. Right. I then researched them. I figured out who else they'd represented and their background, so I was able to send very targeted emails to them. Sounds like the skills of an excellent business school <laughs> student, Reem. <laughs> yes, I was, you know, I knew how to do my research, if exactly. you will. And it paid off. I so mean, wait, so you're still at McKinsey now? During, you're doing this on nights and weekends? Or are you just, no, just, no, no, no. I do this full time now. No, no. Then. Oh, then. Yes. No, this was after McKinsey. This was after LSE. If you remember, this was, I had done my master's. I had had my daughter and I had decided not to pursue the PhD path. So okay. we're past McKinsey now. Got it, got it, yeah. got it. But the, but the departure from McKinsey. The departure from McKinsey, it was, I just realized this is not for me. This I, is not the role model I want to have. I do not, ha- I cannot find meaning in my job. You know, I thought there's 
so many other people out there who are just as qualified to do this job, but I am itching to do something that can have a bigger impact. That, And that's why I left. Again, I was still scared. You asked about the courage. Yes. I didn't have the courage to quit straight on and just go do something completely different, like write a cookbook. I took a small step. I went back to school. Mm -hmm. I studied why I was unhappy at McKinsey. I researched this thing called the false idol hypothesis about how we think becoming a certain type of person, uh, a McKinsey consultant might make me happy. And then I get there and I realize I'm actually not happy. Hmm. Uh, so again, small steps. Which is uh, a fundamental idea in the total leadership approach. Mm -hmm. What we ask people to do in designing experiments to make things better in all the different parts of their lives, their work, their home, their community, their private selves, is based on the, the theory of small wins. You take mm -hmm. a small step that gives you a new perspective on your world. You feel a greater sense of control, a greater sense of competence, and mm -hmm. being able to take more steps in the direction sure. that makes sense to you. But it starts with having an idea right. that you can then convert into those small steps. Micro that are, actions. If, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, so you took those micro actions <laughs> and uh, wrote a proposal, found mm -hmm. an agent. Mm -hmm. I did, yes. Which it was interesting because I, you know, I sent it out before even agents. I sent it to literary consultants, which are people who you pay to review your work. Right. Most of them didn't even want my money, didn't want to look at it. Why? They're like, you're nobody in this world. No agent or publisher is going to take you on. But I was, I thought that's not true. I have a very good product here. I just need to find the right person to take a risk on me. So I reached out to agents by myself. How did you know it was good? I read a lot. I had seen so many mm. cookbooks. I cook a lot. And I knew this was a legitimately good product. My biggest shortcoming was basically... Again, being no one in that world. Nobody mm -hmm. knew my name. I didn't have a restaurant. I had no blog, no social media presence. Mm -hmm. Well, people know your name now. The late Anthony <laughs> Bourdain gave your book, cookbook he a rave. He did. He did, which was, again, also one of those things where I woke up at 6 in the morning and I look at my husband and I'm like, nobody knows who I am. Nobody's going to buy this book. Nobody knows who I am. Yeah, That's nobody, what you woke up thinking. Yes. I was like, nobody's going to buy this book. I need someone to endorse it, someone that people know. And I was like, I think I want Anthony Bourdain to do it. And my husband goes, okay, I think you can do it. And he went back to sleep. And <laughs> So he's thinking he was dreaming or something. Or something. He's like, oh, there we go. Another one of her crazy ideas. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so I went on a hunt for his contact information, basically. I reached out to everyone that I knew, trying to get in touch with him. And eventually I did get a hold of um, his co-author. Co uh-huh. And I told her my story, and I expected, if he even said yes, that he would come back with like a three, four-word blurb, which is normally what he had done. So I was very surprised when he came back and he had written a full heartfelt paragraph. Mm -hmm. And I, that was, to me, a huge win and another testament to the fact that small steps matter. And Well, and a belief in yourself. And a belief in yourself, which is not always easy. What did he say? Do you recall? He called the book... Um, it's an essential book that can transcend divides mm -hmm. and help us understand our complex and fascinating part of the world. It was longer than that, but uh -huh. that was the gist of it. So he, he emphasized the uh, the um, the sort of syn synthesis. He really got to in. the heart of what the book was trying to do. Hmm. Yeah. He was insightful. Brilliant. It was Brilliant a man. big and, loss. And that must, have, uh, that must have really changed how you started to think. Um, about yourself and the the potential for this book. 
Definitely. I mean, initially I thought if I can just publish a book, I'll be happy. Uh-huh. I'll retire. <laughs> <laughs> just get the book out get there. Get the book out, have my name on something, and I'll be done. And then I realized... Be that somebody that, some, that somebody maybe knows. Maybe some person somewhere other than my parents know my name. But uh, once... The book did way better than I ever could have imagined. I mean, to have your first book nominated for a James Beard was huge. Right. And when that happened, I thought, maybe the world is ready now for to know more about Palestinian food, to see how food can be a powerful medium to connect people, to understand people. And that's why I'm working on a second book now, whereas my plan was do a cookbook and maybe go back to the quote-unquote real life that I had before. Which was what? <laughs> oh, at this point, who knows? Uh, <laughs> I thought maybe I would eventually go back for that PhD, but oh. maybe not. Yeah, uh, that's that's <laughs> kind of hard to imagine at this point, but you never know. So about the support that you must have felt from, well, you mentioned your husband saying, yes, mm-hmm. re- reach out to Bourdain. What else did he provide? And who were the other sources of support as you were wrangling with this new set of you know commitments that you were trying to make and fit into your life? There was a lot of people. I mean, my husband, chief among them, my mother, my father, uh, my brother, who all you know tested and ate my recipes. And but on top of that, just emotionally, were there. But I think even though it's a single person who writes a book, no book would ever be published without mass support behind it. Mm-hmm. So my husband, I mean, a there's the belief that I can do it. There's the freedom to do it. He was. He said, if this is what you want to do, just run with it. And we have kids. We have a family. We have responsibility. There's no guarantee that this would ever generate any income if I did it. And to him, it was fine. You just, this is what you want to do. This is what you believe in. Run with it. So you had the, the financial wherewithal, the freedom to be able to pursue this project. Exactly, even which they... people often don't talk about. You know, they say take a risk. But when you live in a world and you have responsibilities and bills to pay, it's not that easy to take a risk if you don't have support behind you. Right. So. Like, like that woman who used to take care of your family. Back yeah, from, who that's true. Traveled from the West Bank. She would right. not have had that same opportunity. No. But you did. And you, and you I'm, took advantage of it. I'm trying to, yes. So how do your kids feel about this book now that uh, – well, how old are they now? <laughs> so my uh, oldest is five and a half. My youngest is three and a half. It's funny because they're very bad eaters. <laughs> and they don't like my food. Uh, what? <laughs> the youngest one is – she eats a little bit better than the older one. But oh. they both are just – it's I, the irony is not lost on me, but it's funny because they know that I'm working on another book now. So mm-hmm. every time they eat something, like I made fish tacos the other day, and they're like, "This should go in your book." And I was like, "Great, the one non-Palestinian item I've cooked." You're like, "This should go in your book." Isn't so. there a version of a fish taco? Like I'm working could... on it now. Yes. Seriously? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll try a fish taco with I don't know what some would... Middle Eastern twist. I don't know. Put zaatar in the fish seasoning or something. What's but... that? Zatar? Yeah. It's a condiment. It's made out. It's actually a plant very similar to oregano. It's uh-huh. dried and then ground with sesame seeds and sumac and salt. And the way we eat it is we dip bread and olive oil and then in that and we eat it. But we also use it to top uh, a pizza-like dough that we make or in pastries. It's very good. I'm surprised you haven't had it. I don't think I have. And now I'm getting hungry. I should have brought some. You totally should have brought some, Rain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's another topic. Another time. Um, so, you know, your kids might grow out of this too. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I hope the, so. Yeah, but uh, I'm, I meant more like if they're old enough to understand what it is that you're trying to do with this project and and what it means 
for them. Maybe they're too young. Maybe not yet, but I think at some point they will. And I think it's also important, and this I'm sure you touch on in your class, we do want to give a lot to our families, to our kids. But one of the worst things I think for kids is to see their parents not living out their dreams. And I think it's important mm. for them to look at their parents and see them doing something that they're happy with. Yes. Because then even if you don't get to spend as much time with them as you'd like, the time that you are there with them, you are fully present and satisfied with your life, that there's a lot they can take away from that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've actually done research on this question and found that uh, parents who feel uh, good about their work mm-hmm. and uh, aligned in terms of the values that they're pursuing with their work and the aspirations that they have for the impact that they're, that they're trying to have, their kids benefit from that. And they're, they're healthier psychologically. I was probably quoting your research before. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, it's, it seems obvious yeah. you know, to say that when you, when you just step back and reflect on that idea for a mm-hmm. moment. But uh, far too many of us are not really able to ask that question and think about what it means, and and to be able to make the kind of shift that that you were Mm -hmm. able to make. I mean, I think a lot of times we think that we need to work to give our kids things, but Mm. what they get from us personally and emotionally, I think, carries a lot more weight later on in life than the tangibles. Indeed. And that was what was motivating your decision to pursue this, was it not? It was. In large part, it was. It was, and again, sorry to keep going back to your course, but you... No, no, no. That's not something to apologize for. (laughs) You also always told us it's not about balance. It's not about work-life balance. It's Mm -hmm. about integration. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons I decided to continue pursuing this full-time is I realized this was a wonderful way to integrate work and life. I can pick up my kids from school every day, and I can drop them off, and I can make dinner every night because... A lot of those, I mean, A, making dinner, I'm generally testing recipes. So uh-huh. it works. Uh, I work at More night. More fish after- tacos, mom. <laughs> <laughs> More spaghetti and make, I don't know, put some zatar in the meat sauce. But it, it works. Uh, uh-huh. And I'm there. And, you mm-hmm. know, they, they're right, like right now, I'm here. My husband is with the girls at home. And mm-hmm. it allows us to have the kind of family life that works for us. doesn't mean it's the right choice for everyone. Again, it's personal individual choice and so your what's been the impact on your life of having produced a book that has really gotten a lot of attention and and uh, brought new awareness to Palestinian cuisine on a day-to-day basis not much has changed I still I you know I live the same life I was living before. I wake up in the morning and I get my kids ready for school and I make their lunches and I cook dinner and whatnot. But on a larger scale, I'm exposed to a lot of things that I would not have been otherwise. I'm able to interact with people that otherwise I would not have met. I'm able to go and speak at places that, I, I, mean, I like I mentioned to you, I was at Columbia University this past week. And, mm-hmm. and it's just part of the reason I had considered pursuing a PhD in teaching is because I wanted to help an up-and-coming generation. Mm-hmm. To do what differently? Well, to to make the most out of the opportunities that they're given. Because a lot of times you realize those things in hindsight, like I had this opportunity, why did I waste it? Or Mm -hmm. to help them make decisions as they are on the cusp of very big ones. And so I realized that my experience itself, forget just the book and what it does for Palestinians, but the story of having been able to let go of certain fears and inhibitions to pursue something that may or may not have succeeded eventually. And the lessons I learned from that are also allowing me to speak more to other people and hopefully to give them, if not inspire them, at least give them some 
tangible ideas about what they could do with their own. What kinds of questions do you get, like when you were speaking to the undergrads at Columbia last week? What was the what sticks in your mind as uh, their reaction to your story and what they wanted to know more about? I mean, a lot of them wanted to know. So when things, I spoke to them a lot about how we often look at someone who's successful and think that their path went linearly straight right. up, and that in fact the arrow is a lot more convoluted and twisted than we think. But mm-hmm. nobody talks about these lows and these down points because, hey, who wants to listen to a speech about how things can often not be great? Uh, So one of the questions was, well, when things aren't great and when you do face no's and failures and disappointments, how do you turn around from that? How do you find the motivation to continue picking yourself up and going on? You know, I told them that for me, it was often from the people around me. You know, there were many times where I put this proposal in a drawer and thought it was never going to come to fruition. Because you were getting rejections from well, agents I, and publishers. And- it, no, this was before agents and publishers. This was just when the literary consultants didn't even want to review it and tell me if it was worth sending to agents or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it was a friend from Morton who came over one night and I was too embarrassed to even mention the idea that I was working on a cookbook. And when I told her, she thought, you're insane. This is great. Why wouldn't you? Hmm do this. And so often it's the people around us who love us, who care. Because we, oftentimes I've noticed we tend to get into this, oh, I don't care what anybody thinks, but it's hardwired into our DNA to care. Mm -hmm. And the best thing you can do is just figure out who the people that their opinion should matter to you are. And it should be the people who are, figuratively speaking, in the ring with you, basically picking you up when you Mm -hmm. fall down or pushing you on when you're doing well, not the critics on the outside who are looking for you to fail and just to pounce on that one There's thing. There's always going to be haters. Yep, so you have to silence those critics. By surrounding yourself with people who, who, who love support you, who love you, but who are also honest to tell you this mm-hmm. idea sucks, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Or no, this idea is great, even if everyone tells you it's bad, keep going. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of finding those people. So what was the darkest moment for you on, the, on this path? Look, there's a lot of dark, I mean... Even to this day, people say, what do you do? And I struggle to answer that because saying, yeah, saying I'm a business consultant seemed to fit or tick a box to say I'm a professor ticks a box. People say, what do you do? What am I going to say? I'm a food writer. What do you write? I wrote a cookbook. I say I'm a cookbook author. Well, ever in one book, does that really make me a cookbook? I struggle with these questions. Also, I spent my whole life thinking that writing cookbooks and being in the kitchen was something lowbrow and... Worse than that. <laughs> in the beginning of this conversation, you seem to suggest that being in the kitchen was uh, something. It was like a life to, sentence for. Like a prison yeah, almost. Yeah, and it's taken me a while. Your to father's con- friends saying, well, you know, she should be in the kitchen, and that's that revolted you. It did. I mean, but again, it's sometimes that anger is good. It's a good motivator, it pushes you. And here you are in the kitchen. Out of choice, not circumstance. And I ah, think that makes the biggest difference. That's everything, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yes. And yet still you have this sense of it's not quite. I struggle with it every day. I'm not going to lie. You know, oftentimes the other day I was at an event and someone said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a food writer. And she goes, what is that? What is that? (laughs) Who asked you that question? Some person. I don't know. And I said, so I just don't like having to explain all the time and justify what I do. So that's if you want to ask about the darkest moment, that's the biggest struggle that I deal with. So you you continue to have a sense of doubt about Mm -hmm. what you do despite your success. Yeah, I do. And And that's, again, something we don't talk about. We perpetuate this idea that when you succeed, when you get to some imaginary top, that everything's rosy. But it's not. I mean, for every 
person who has a major high in a success, there come major lows after it. For every yes, you've heard 10 no's. For everything you've gained, you've lost something in return. And yes, we perpetuate the idea that it's not like that. But I think Bob Dylan said, you'll find out when you reach the top, you're on the bottom. You'll never reach it. I mean, there's always <laughs> someone above you, someone better than you. It's Exactly. That's a really good uh, lesson, I'm sure, for, especially for people, you know, 10 years behind you to to hear. Um, how do you think they took it? I think they liked it. I mean, a lot of them are about to make decisions post-graduation. One of them, her parents were there and they came up to me and they said, you should tell your kids this every day so that they understand the mm. struggles that you went through. They don't look at success and think it comes easily. Um, right. But again, there's the other thing, and you learn all this stuff, like I told you, in hindsight, it's 2020, but mm-hmm. we also have this idea that if you succeed, you know, I made it as a food writer, it's because you're the best at something, but actually you don't have to be the best to make it. You just have to show up and do the work. Yes. I Research even shows like most people likely to publish a best-selling novel are not the ones with the most inspiration or creativity. It's the ones who write 500 words a day. They persist. They persist. And they're disciplined in, mm-hmm. their, in their persistence and... In, Producing the work. Right. So is food a unifying force that can bridge religious and other divides? I don't know. What what have you learned about that idea and about yourself, really, from your collaboration with Michael Solomonov, who Mm -hmm. is a now (laughs) world-renowned restaurateur uh, and food writer mm-hmm. uh, who uh, is based now in Philadelphia and right. has the the uh, great uh, Israeli restaurant, Zahav, and now a few others, um, which is touted as one of the great restaurants of, of America. They just won the best restaurant in America last night at the James Beard Awards. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> uh, for underscoring that. So there you there you go. Best restaurant in America, uh-huh. uh, Michael Solomonov's Zahav, and now you two are friends. How did that happen, and what does that mean for 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 you? This project mm-hmm. that you're working on next, and and the power of food in bringing people together. It's an interesting story because the first experience I ever had with Zahav was as a student here at Wharton where I went out to dinner with my friends. And back then, you know, politics wasn't as much on my mind, neither was food. But (laughs) I remember eating a dish at his restaurant that tasted exactly like the one that my mother makes at home. And as nice as it was as a student who was nostalgic to taste something that really took me back to my family, I was also very angry. You know, why is the best Palestinian dish that I'm eating in the U.S. at an Israeli restaurant? And hmm. What was wrong with that picture? <laughs> what was not wrong with that picture? <laughs> uh, and then what was it? Fast forward eight, ten years. We moved to Philly halfway through publishing this book. And once it came out, I was sending my book to a lot of people in the industry and I decided I was going to send it to Mike as well and I wrote him a letter along with the book. Mm-hmm. And in the letter I referenced that dish that I had eaten at his restaurant telling him, you know, again, I was upset that about the whole situation but I told him that I think food can start a conversation where nothing else has been able to. Mm-hmm. And I found this out later that he received my book in the letter the night before he was set to speak at a conference on Israeli cuisine as a keynote speaker and he threw out his speech and read my letter instead. Oh, wow. And I think, you know, we ended up meeting afterwards, and we have since become very good friends. And I think we both realize both the power and the shortcomings of food. You know, yes, it can be a force for good, but not if 
like I said to you before, it's not going to solve the problems in the mm. Middle East. But it definitely helps you get to know the person across the table from you in a much more intimate way than you would otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for my, I'm probably the very first Palestinian friend that he has. And getting to see the other side, quote unquote, as a human being with kids the same age as yours who enjoy the same games and mm-hmm. who love spending time together, you start to look at the conflict in a different light as well. You know, he, of course you do. I think you mentioned the article that just came out where he says, how can I look at this person and say, you can, I can have independence, but you cannot. And I, I think if you can make these strides on a personal level across the region and the country, then you're on the right path. It all starts with conversation, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the crossing of divides. And, and food can help to bring Food helps that. you to have that conversation. It's, so, when you're not hungry, it's easier to talk. <laughs> When you're not hungry, it's easier to talk. It's easier to do everything when you That's true. when you feel satisfied with what's inside of you. So, what is this next project about? So it's a slight change from the first book was Palestinian food, three generations of my family, the recipes and stories passed throughout. Inevitably, after that book came out, and I started doing a lot of interviews, I was doing a lot of research on the history of food and. I came to realize how the history much, of food in general. In general, or? just well, again, it's a very charged region. So I'm getting asked questions in interviews. You know, how is Palestinian different from Lebanese? How is it different from uh, Syrian, from Israeli, from so on and so forth? Uh-huh. And the deeper I got into that research, the more I realized how really, truly, it's hard to lay claim to specific foods. I mean, uh, the example I always use is Italian food. The first thing you think of is probably what pizza, pasta, lasagna, panza, all of it very tomato-based dishes. Tomatoes actually didn't originate. And they have they were never in Italy. Tomatoes are from Mexico. And you start to look at the history of food and you're like, my God, look at how much cultures have borrowed and learned from each other throughout history. And the Middle East mm. is no exception. Uh, so this book is focusing on the current state of food in the Middle East and how this, you know, how Arabic food is has evolved in recent years and how it's continuing to evolve both as it intersects with other cultures and as people travel extensively and live in different countries and maybe don't have access to the same ingredients, how those dishes are being modernized or changed to fit in also with, you know, a faster lifestyle and Hmm. so on and so forth. So it's, in two words, it's the evolving or cross-cultural food of the Middle East. And what are you hoping to achieve with this book? Again, a lot more conversation because... Mm -hmm. We end up oftentimes fighting about food of, you know, this is mine, this is yours, but actually food doesn't belong to anyone. The more we learn from each other and the more we adapt, the richer cuisine is. It's, you know, give credit where credit is due. If Mm -hmm. you, you know, I obviously there are tomatoes are from Mexico. Thank you. (laughs) Fish tacos, not Palestinian. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, just. Give credit where credit is due, where you learned a recipe from, why this influence came from this country or that person, uh-huh. and then relish the richness of the cuisine that you're building as a result of interacting and learning from other cultures. We've, the, mo- the richest cultures throughout history have consistently and constantly borrowed and learned from one another. And of that's course. something to celebrate, not something. And I want that book to be a celebration of those things that we have learned and continue to learn from each other. What an important idea in our world today. Let's see how the execution goes. Of course, (laughs) uh, the execution of the book. Yeah. How's it going? 
Well, it's early phases. Um, uh-huh. I don't submit a manuscript till later, till the end of the year, early next year. I bet it was easier to get a publisher this time. It's around. the same publisher, actually. So they, which is Biden, and and they were excited about uh, about about this project, mm-hmm. and they were, it's yes. a lot easier for you to get their their buy in this time. I'll bet it is. I mean, they know what they're getting. They know the quality of the work, the way I submit things on time, which apparently in the publishing industry doesn't happen. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, well, that that may be true. I, I wouldn't know. Um, <laughs> actually, I would. Um, so um, what are you hoping, uh, as you think about your kids growing up, what, what, what are your greatest aspirations for them? I just hope that they follow what matters to them without paying attention too much to the pressures that society puts on them. You know, it's I noticed they're very young, but already there is so much pressure about getting into the right schools and the right wow. extracurriculars. And kids don't have the time to basically live their lives and learn from being children. And I mm. don't want that for them. You know, mm. I want them to have free time to play. To yes. Eventually, when they come to go to university, it's not just about the name. It's about where you're going to get the best education that's right for you and your aspirations. And I hope that I can continue to be that kind of mother and not get sucked into the rat race, if you will. How are you going to do that based on what you've learned from your own experience and having to sort of break through? I mean, doesn't every generation have to discover that for themselves? They do. And I think what I have to do is learn to let go. I... Mm like to control things and I think with kids a lot of times it's about helping them make these decisions for themselves so I try in small steps right now to get them to decide on their own you know Mm -hmm. here's your allowance you decide what you're going to buy with it Mm -hmm. Uh, can I have more candy you decide you know you're the one that's going to have to go to the dentist again for cavities make that decision but how did your parents eventually figure out how to let go in 30 seconds Oh, I think they were forced to let go. I left at 17. I was across the <laughs> across the ocean there. <laughs> there was no choice there. It was like, hard, but I think it paid off. And so they, how do they feel about what, what has become of their daughter? It's funny. So they're very proud, obviously. My mother tested more than half the recipes with me for the book and actually cooked every single picture you see in the book. But when I first mentioned the idea to her, and again, she'll be upset if she hears me saying this, but her first reaction was, who goes to Wharton so that they can write a cookbook? And now she's like, I never said that. I just didn't understand exactly what you meant when you said cookbook. This is very important. This is great. So they're very proud of where I am. But above all, like any parent, they're happy to see that I'm happy. Yes, of course. There are people who come to Wharton to write cookbooks, by the way. <laughs> there, was a, there was a student in my total leadership class two years ago who realized upon graduation that that's what she was going to be doing. Really? Yes. That's uh, amazing. Yes. So, so you're not the only one, Miriam. I'm so happy to know there's, that. <laughs> there's, a, there's a tradition that I think that has started here. Um, I've been asking everyone this year, uh, the year that I'm thinking of is the year of accountability, mm-hmm. what do you do, if anything, to mm-hmm. hold yourself accountable to living in accord with your values every day? That's a tough one. Um, well, for starters, you need to know what those values are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think one of the things that I want is to make sure that I'm a kind, good person, that I'm a good mother, that I continue to care for the causes that I care about. In terms of what I do to hold myself accountable, I mean, it's 
I guess, reflecting on those things, mm-hmm. whether it's on a daily basis, which I don't do, um, perhaps on a weekly, monthly basis, but just sending the time to think meaningfully about when it comes time to make a decision, does this fit in with the values that I have? Mm-hmm. But I think taking the time to reflect is probably the most important thing. And it sounds intuitive, but you don't realize how little time we have and how little time we dedicate to sitting and just thinking. And well, flicking through your phone on Instagram not is not thinking. No, and that's certainly not reflecting. <laughs> well, thanks for offering that. And thanks, Reem, for the remarkable work that you've done. I'm super excited about what's coming next. And I really appreciate your sharing your story and your wisdom with our listeners uh, and for doing so here in the studio. Thanks so much, Reem. Thank you for having me, Stu. Where's the best place for people to find out more about your work and uh, what's coming next? Um my Instagram, Reem Cassis, very basic, or my website, reemcassis.com. That's R-E-E-M-K-A-S-S-I-S? Exactly. All right. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you found my conversation with Reem Cassis to be eye-opening as well as mouth-watering, and that it not only piqued your interest in Palestinian cuisine and culture, but as importantly emboldened you to try to think about the purposes you are pursuing in your work and career and perhaps take a small step of your own to move a bit closer to realizing the vision you have of the life you want to be leading. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Just like Reem did in my class some years ago, Think of a person you admire and just describe him or her. What is it about this person that inspires you? And then what does this tell you about the kind of person, the kind of leader you want to be in your life? Let me know what you discover. I would love to hear from you so you can get in touch with me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit TotalLeadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.